right. I feel like I can't start teaching until I address uh, the whole underwear story. Um, it was in Albania, and my luggage got lost, and it didn't arrive, and I only had one set of clothes, and there's no other option. So every guy knows the trick. Inside out, forwards, backwards. All right. There's no other option. Okay. Uh, let's talk about the other elephant in the room. Uh, I feel like we would be irresponsible as a church, as a youth group, if we did not at least say something about coronavirus and what we're supposed to do as Christians in response to it. Uh, and both real talk and both crazy, oh my gosh, who saw like all the things Costco and like every like grocery store? Why is there no toilet paper? How does toilet paper relate to this? I, it doesn't relate at all. I don't get it. No sense. Does not relate to coronavirus. Uh, okay, but, but what that shows us clearly is that people in the area, people in the world, they're freaking out about it. it, it people legitimately, this is real anxiety, this is real fear that they have about this thing. So let's just take a quick second, let's talk about it, let's talk about what we're supposed to think about this as Christians, how we're supposed to act, respond, talk about it. Uh, let's, let's walk through this. Uh, guys, when the world is falling apart, when it feels like the world is in mass hysteria, just absolutely crazy about this thing. Uh, we are called, it's plain and clear, Jesus teaches us so clearly that we are called to be calm in the midst of the storm. And there's a very easy story that's literally Jesus calming a storm for us. Um, so if you have your Bibles, open up Matthew 8. Uh, if you have your phone, look up Matthew 8, verses 23 to 27. We're going to go through this quick, but uh, the lesson is straightforward. So Jesus is with his disciples uh, and they are all in a boat. So there's the 12 dudes and Jesus. They're all in the boat. And this is what, what uh, the story says. It says, Then he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat. This is a big deal. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. Now, the same story is in the book of Mark as well. And in Mark, it actually says, do you not care that we are going to die? They're freaking out right now. And Jesus replies, saying, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up, rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calmed. calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Even the viruses and the germs obey him. Guys, Jesus literally basically says to them, What's wrong? I'm God. What are you afraid of? And our response is supposed to be the same way whenever the world is freaking out about something. It doesn't matter what it is. A couple years ago, the presidential election, everyone freaked out, said, oh my gosh, everything's falling apart. It's all different. When the world freaks out, our hope is not in any single person. Our hope is not in our ability to fight viruses and germs. Uh, like, when people are freaking out, and I know for you guys, a lot of you really are not afraid of this thing. Your parents probably are. But the way that you should be thinking about this is no fear at all, right? You are absolute confidence that the God, that the Jesus who can calm the wind and the waves can also control viruses, your health, and he can protect you, he can heal you, he can do whatever he wants, and we're not to be afraid. We're supposed to remain calm when everything around us seems to be falling apart. Um, think about this, the amount of energy that it takes to worry about something. This doesn't even just have to be this, but anything. The amount of energy it takes to worry about something is actually the same, if not more, energy that it would take for you to be praying about that. And prayer is real, and prayer is powerful. And so if you actually are worried about something, take that same energy, take that same time that you're thinking about it, bring it before God and pray. Honestly, that's easy. 
That applies to everything in life, but, but especially when we're in times of trial where it seems like the world is freaking out, that's actually time for us to rise above and lead as examples. Um, this doesn't mean that we get to be reckless or stupid. My goodness, wash your freaking hands. Uh, <laughs> it's not biblical. That's just like hygiene. Wash your hands. Okay, guys, I'm going to talk to the guys in the room real quick. When you go to the bathroom, don't do the guy thing where you walk up to the sink and you turn it on and don't even put your hands in it just so you don't get judged. Guys, I know you know what I'm talking about. Boys, put your hands in the warm water with soap. Sing a happy birthday and rinse it off. Guys, girls, I know you guys generally actually wash your hands, but guys, I'm dead serious. I'm dead serious. Okay. All right, here's the other side of things. Excuse me. So don't be stupid. Be smart. Wash your hands. That's, that's precautionary. That's actually a good way to love people around you. Uh, real facts about the virus, it probably will not affect most of us. We're kind of in a safe age range. But that's one way that we can love and protect uh, people that may actually get ill from this thing and may actually be affected. There's another side of this, though, that we need to be thinking about. And the other side is how are we acting and how are we talking about this? Uh, guys, our... I've, I've seen just so many posts, memes, whatever, videos, um, and yes, honestly, a lot of them are funny, but there are a lot of jokes about coronavirus. Uh, <clears throat> but here's the thing that we need to think about, and again, this doesn't just apply to this, but it's happening right now, so it's something that we can respond to. Uh, getting a quick laugh in is never worth it in terms of comparison to going the extra mile to make sure that people around you feel compassion and love from you. So people that actually are freaked out about this thing, uh, making jokes about it with them, not going to calm them. It's not loving. People that uh, may actually be hurt by this, uh, this is going to be weird. I'm part Asian. Uh, Asians have experienced a lot of xenophobia and a lot of racism because of this. And making an Asian joke that, hey, you're Asian, so you're going to give me coronavirus, may seem funny in the moment, may not even hurt that person, but it may be hurting someone else. And the truth is, as followers of Jesus, we are called to a higher standard where just because the world says it's okay and just because one person says it's okay, we need to think about how is this affecting my ability to share Jesus with everyone, everyone that you come in contact with. So think through and be wise. Because our, our speech is called to be full of confidence. We have confidence that Jesus is in control, that God is still sovereign. We're called to be compassionate, compassionate towards others, people that are infected. Be compassionate, be praying for them, be caring, uh, be, be compassionate towards those that are afraid. Don't just jump to judgment on them, uh, but, but really be compassionate and understanding, and also selflessness, where you put the needs of others and the feelings of others ahead of your own so that we can be lights into this world. Okay, so that is what we're called to. We are called to a higher standard, and this is actually an awesome opportunity for us as the church, as the big church, not just as Alderwood, but as the big church across the world, to lead in this. To actually lead is how we love people and how we care for people and don't respond in panic, in, in ignorance either, uh, but we lead with compassion and confidence that Jesus is still in control and we lead accordingly. So that's what we're supposed to do. That's your five-minute deal, whatever, with, with coronavirus. And that actually brings us into our passage in Timothy, um, which this was not planned, but it totally does. Um, and, and this passage that we're in in Timothy, if you want to turn there now, go ahead. First Timothy uh, 1, 12 to 17. But 
uh, where we're at in this, this story in this letter from Paul. Um, so again, Paul's a missionary, and he's writing this letter to this, this guy that he considers his son in the faith, Timothy. He loves him dearly, and Timothy is with a church that Paul's left him with, and he's giving him instructions. But this is just one of the most beautiful messages in this letter, these few verses. It is so beautiful, it is so powerful, and it's so straightforward, too, uh, of what Paul desires. Uh, and so let's, let's read this. Uh, together, then let's pray, and let's jump in. So Paul says this, starting in verse 12. I, think, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, pray for our time tonight. Pray that you would use me, give me uh, by your spirit, by, by his wisdom. God, give me, uh, give me his wisdom. Give me the words to speak. Give me truth from your word. Let each of us that are here, that are um, spending time in your word, let us treasure this time and, and receive it as a, a gift from you. And let us really be honest in this time with, with open ears and open hearts to, to what you desire for us, what is true for us that we need to take home and, and what we need to change and apply in our lives, God. So pray that this is a time that we share with you, that we recognize that this is a special time with you, and, and just help us be uh, focused on you in this time, God. Amen. So, <clears throat> two Albania stories in one night. This one's not about underwear. Um, I had a tent a couple of years ago. It was like two or three years ago in Albania. Um, historically, I've had Albania. You, it, if you don't know, we do a mission trip in Albania, um, and it's pretty rough in it camping. The last two years have been pretty nice. We've been going to a nice place, but uh, before that, it was literally like a state campground. And so we set up these tents, and they're kind of nice because they at least had bunks. So they were like metal frames, semi-permanent, but uh, it was still like real camping. Uh, and so I was in this tent, and normally I've had really good tents with great guys I've had great conversations with, and I love getting in there because uh, at night everyone's kind of tired and walls go down, and you talk to them, and they're open to talking about Jesus and their past, and it's really cool. Um, this was not that. Uh, this was the worst year of Albania ever. Uh, my goodness, I had these five dudes in the tent, and I knew three of them from years before, but five dudes in my tent who made it their sole goal to make sure that I never slept at all for a week in a foreign country where you are going hard in like 90 degree weather with high humidity. It was exhausting. <clears throat> These dudes were the worst. I mean, the worst. Like during the day when I'm not in my tent, they would open up my bag, which by the way, had locks on it, so I'm not sure how, but they would open up my bag go through everything, and I knew it because I would find it opened on my bed, empty everything out, find my food, and take my food. Uh, they, they didn't steal anything of value, just food. It was just like, oh my gosh. They also, 
during the night. Like I said, they didn't let me sleep. So they'd be throwing things at me. Usually my food that they stole from me, they'd be throwing things, or they had like beads or like dice that they like pepper me with just to make sure I stayed awake. If I actually started falling asleep, the guy below me would start kicking the bottom of my bunk. Like, so it's like, these are cheap bunks. Like, it's like raising me up. So like, they're kicking me. Or they just like come over and like if my eyes were closed, they'd scream in my face. See, that's really funny to you. But at 3 a.m., when you haven't slept for two days, that's not funny. Oh, my gosh. I was going insane. It was like a torture chamber, and I couldn't do anything about it because they don't speak English, or they pretend not to. I know they do, but they pretend not to. Also, they're always talking about you, like, oh, American, and they think that I don't know that they're talking about me. Anyway. All right, rant session over. So these guys, anyway, uh, these guys pushed me to my breaking point, if you can't tell. Uh, I was pushed to my breaking point. Like, I love Albania, I love Albanians, I've loved the difficult kids, but I've never had to be in the tent with five of them. And when you're in a group with so many kids that are acting so poorly, I cannot help but kind of hate their guts. Uh, Like, I did not want them there. I so was just done with them. I was ready for them to get sent home. And the honest truth is, if we think about it, what's our purpose of going to Albania? Any of you that are going... Person going to Albania is to bring the gospel to people that have never heard it, that need to receive it, that need Jesus to come into their lives and change everything about them. And these are five dudes that probably needed the gospel more than anyone else there. Because, man, they were messed up. Like, they, they were getting into fights. They were uh, out. One of the camp rules is that you can't smoke there. They were hiding away and smoking. Uh, and then it actually ended up being, they actually did get sent home because they got caught uh, breaking the rules. And we're pretty sure that they actually lit a brush fire to try to burn us out. Um, these were bad dudes. Uh, They were messed up. They were jerks. And Paul, in this letter, compares himself to being the worst of the worst. And if I was to actually put these two guys on a scale between them and Paul, Paul is worse. Um, These guys were jerks. Paul was straight up killing people and imprisoning people and trying to destroy their lives. Uh, Paul is the worst. Uh, Paul is killing friends, people that would be our friends, our family. And yet, Paul is used for amazing things. Paul is writing this letter from a place where he has gone as one of the greatest missionaries in history, changed the world, and brought the gospel to people that desperately need it. And he is the worst. He should have been disqualified before he even got to this point. It doesn't make any sense. Acts 8.3 says this, right before he actually... Uh, was saved, but Saul, same person, different name, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. By his own list in this passage, Paul is a blasphemer, a uh, persecutor, and he's a violent man. Blaspheming is saying things that are not true about God. He's going around discrediting Jesus, saying he's not God, he's not the Savior. He's blaspheming. Uh, he was a persecutor. He was choosing people, like, just like that pastor said. He's dragging people away. He's persecuting them. He's harming them because they want to follow Jesus. And he's a violent man. He was killing people. He's beating them. His past is full of mistakes, just so many horrible, rotten mistakes that I'm sure if Paul were standing here today with us, he would tell us, I regret it. Definitely. Why wouldn't he? And ordinarily, I think that we look at someone that's like Paul, and we do one of two things. If we're being really honest, if someone that was similar to Paul was standing here before us, 
And all we knew was their track record. We knew their rap sheet, everything they did wrong. We would either write them off and say that person would never turn to Jesus, right? If we're being really honest, that's our first thought. If we're a church kid and we think we know the Sunday school answer, we'd say, well, yes, but Jesus can change anyone, so I think that maybe they can, but deep down in your heart, you really doubt that, right? We know in our head that people, anyone can be saved, but in practice, what we really do and the way we really treat people and the way we really think about our friends and the people in our lives that are really messed up, we write them off, say, no, they're nowhere near Jesus right now, so I'm not going to spend my time trying to share the gospel with them because they're not close to getting saved, so why would I bother? Because it's just not their time. It's going to happen some other way. And that's just not what Paul is saying here. That's not at all true. I went so back and forth on saying this because it's going to derail everything, but Kanye West. Uh, Kanye West is the example. Uh, And this proves our inner biases. Kanye West. When Kanye West said that he got saved, what did the church do? The church did one of two things. Either they were like, oh my gosh, this is amazing, Josiah Lewis. Uh, He's not here tonight, but, oh, he's downstairs. Uh, So they went, oh my gosh, this is amazing, Kanye West is Christian, this is the best thing ever, right? Or people went, hmm, we'll see. It's probably just for views, probably just to sell his new album, we'll see, because we all know Christian albums make the most money, right? No, but Kanye was doing this thing where he was going, hey, yo, I'm Jesus. I'm a God. I'm better than Jesus. That was his mantra. Literally, I am a God. Two, now his message has changed to Jesus is king. God has saved me. God has changed me. And our first reaction was, I don't know. And, and just to, to temper this a little bit, there is a, a healthy state in there where uh, Paul even says, don't be hasty with the laying on of hands. One of the things that Paul said, or when Paul, uh, what Paul means when he says that is, don't too quickly accept people, actually. Get to know them before you give them your full stamp of approval. But it's also not our place that we get to judge them and say, you have to prove to me that you're actually following Jesus, right? Because part of our thing is, with Christian Kanye, immediately we're like, uh, Kanye's past actions mean that he's probably not genuine, Paul's past actions mean he's probably not genuine. Same comparison. We don't get to do that because God has said, and Paul reiterates very clearly, that I can save whoever I want from whatever they're doing, and they are mine, and I'm going to use them, and you're getting on board or get off the ship, right? Man, if we we look at Paul, it just doesn't add up. The equation's not there for our mind. But the answer is that Jesus alone, Jesus changes everything. The equation doesn't matter because Jesus. Verse 12, Paul credits Jesus for this. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Jesus did it, not me. Paul's not saying, I changed everything, I got better, so now I can serve Jesus. He says, no, Jesus came to me and said, I'm going to fix you. Verse 14, Paul says this, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He needed abundant faith from Jesus. And verse 16, for this very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, 
the worst of sinners. Paul is the worst. No one is worse than him. The worst of sinners. Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul says, I was so bad and God chose me to prove to all of you nincompoops that God will use the worst people to show how good he is, how patient he is, how he can change anyone and use them for his glory. And so we need to think about that about other people. But man, the real truth is we need to think that about ourselves too. Because as quick as we are to write off other people, we are quicker to write off ourselves in the moment. And when I'm messed up, when I am living in sin and I know it, I am so quick to let the voice in my head that goes, Austin, you're messing up. You're not good. God can't use that. And the worst one is, don't tell God because he won't be happy with you and he can't forgive you. Those are lies. And those are the things that get in our head that when we hear and when we think about our sin, we let those dominate our inner conversation, our inner monologue. And that's not actually coming from God. We're told that the Holy Spirit will convict us of sin. You've probably heard that in church before. The Holy Spirit convicts you. He's like your conscience. But conviction is not guilt. Guilt is from the enemy. Because what the enemy wants to do is he wants to drive a wedge between you and God. God is our loving, forgiving, and patient Father. And when we mess up, he wants us to come running to him and tell him what we did. He already knows. But he wants us to come running to him, tell him what we did, and he will forgive you, and he will cause you to change, right? But what the enemy wants you to do is he wants you to get this image in your head that your God, is, that your, God, that your Father, is sitting there angry at you. Because he wants to get a wedge between us. Because he knows that he can't hurt God, but he can hurt you. If the enemy gets to you and tells you that you are messed up, that you are not worthy, he knows that that hurts your image as a child of God, as a son or daughter. If you have accepted Jesus and you are a member of his family, you are the royal son or daughter, you are in his family, and the enemy wants to break that image. He can't hurt God, but he can hurt you. And we can't give in to that lie. We can't give in to the lie that we've messed up so bad that God can't use you. We can't give in to the lie that you're beyond fixing. Man, if God can fix Paul, a murderer, whose sole goal in life was to destroy God's church, he can fix whatever you've done. Man, he can fix us when we're lying to our parents, when we're caught watching porn, when we're messing around with our boyfriend or girlfriend, when you're sneaking out, doing things that you know you're not supposed to, when you're cheating on tests, when you're gossiping about your friends. God, guys, God knows about that already. And yet, he still calls you into his family, into his purpose to be used by him for amazing and glorious things. He knew that when he called you. He knew what you were going to do. He knew how messed up and broken you were. He knew how messed up and broken I was. And yet he still called us. Jesus' death on the cross was still enough to cover that. That forgiveness, that price was already paid, and he chose you regardless. He didn't just choose you to be used on the side. 
He chose you to be used for his glory, for his purpose. That is far greater than anything we can imagine. It's far greater than anything we can do on our own. It was solely because he is capable, because he is good, because he is the all-powerful, all-sovereign God. And that's who we serve. And that is the truth that Paul is conveying. That he was the worst, and God used him for big things. So imagine how bad you are, and God will use you for big things too. God will use anyone. So we don't get to write anyone off, not even ourselves. So I'm going to invite the, the band back up on stage, and sorry, Tom, I didn't tell you this, but can you just play for a minute or two before we start? And I'll open this up in prayer, and I want you guys just to have a minute or two of silence on your own. This is what I, I would ask you to do. Um, just spend a minute or two and honestly confess this to God. Confess the way that you've doubted. Confess the sins that you've committed. Because what Paul does is Paul, com- Paul confesses his sins, and by doing that, He obeys God. He takes the path to repentance, and in doing so, he's able to be used by God. So take a minute or two. Confess your sins to God. He already knows. Then confess it to a brother or sister, friend, leader, someone here that you love and trust. Confess it to them and ask them to pray for you that you would be encouraged with the truth from God's word, the truth from this letter from Paul, that you are still worthy. You are still good enough to be used as his chosen instrument. So he said, Tom, go ahead and play. I'll I'll open us up in prayer a minute or two just for you guys. God, thank you for this beautiful letter. Thank you for this beautiful reminder. God, I just pray that for any of us that are dealing with our own brokenness, that we deal with uh, doubts, that we deal with the feeling of being uh, unable to be used by you, unworthy of you. God, we know that we're unworthy of you, but you have called us anyway that you love us. So God, I pray that the truth from your word, the truth of your love would penetrate past that. And just pray for a a time now of honest and open confession that we can run to our loving Father, that we know that there's no condemnation before you, that we can bring our sin to you, and you will forgive us, God. So I pray that that would happen now. I pray that business that needs to happen with you happens now. Praise things in your name.